God, we thank you once again for this time to pray to you, to trust in you, to seek your wisdom out through the scripture with other people in fellowship, Lord. We thank you for this day that we can glorify every bit of you that you deserve. We thank you for the music, the sermon, the word, and the fellowship once again we have today. We love you and praise you, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated as you take your seat, open your Bibles up to the book of Philippians. Just entering into this book, and last week we did more of the introductory things going into it, trying to frame it in the context and looking at the history, a little bit more about the author, which is Paul, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so really one author of the entire Bible, that is the Holy Spirit. We looked about the setting of Philippi, Uh, we read through Acts chapter 16, which is where Paul and Silas and some of the others that were with them went into the region of Macedonia and encountered these believers in this city or actually brought the gospel and we saw many come to the faith in the city of Philippi and now there is an established church there and that is to whom this letter is written, Philippians. And we'll begin back in verse 1. We covered verses 1 and 2. That's all we were able to get through last week. But we're going to pick back up with verse 1 and read through verse 8. And our teaching today will be more confined to verses 3 through 6. We didn't quite, or I didn't quite make it in my study time through verses 7 and 8. There was just enough there that uh, would take up the 45 minutes roughly that uh, I've been given today. But uh, we'll just cover that that particular passage from 3 through 6. 3 through 6, but let's go back to verse 1. I think everybody's found their way to this book, and I'll begin reading. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's go once more to God in prayer. Father, we pray that as we take this time to study your word, that we grow more in the knowledge of who you are, and that you would imbue these truths into our hearts, that it would enrich our lives, that it would change our lives in the way we respond to this world around us. We see things falling into chaos, God. Every day we wake up, we see things that are more and more destructive. We see the earth's decay, and we know that as a result, it is a cause of sin. We know that you have so much more for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, who have been influenced and impacted by this measure of grace that you have given to us through his redeeming sacrifice on the cross. God, I pray that we would live out our lives in obedience to you, and in you and in you alone we find this joy and this peace and this love that we read about in your word that is connected to your truth that can only be found in Christ Jesus. We pray that we apprehend these truths with our minds and with our hearts this morning, and God, that you would just prepare us to receive it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, amen. 
Let's come back and I'll do some repeating of these verses as we walk through these together. But there at verse 3, we see Paul writing that he thanks his God. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So Paul is drawing from these memories that he has of his time spent there with the church in Philippi, in the city in the city of Philippi with the Philippian church. It is his encounters that he's had with those that are there, probably Lydia and those of her household and those who have joined in to the small church that is gathered there. We see, or scholars seem to think that the early church in the city of Philippi was gathered in Lydia's home. She was a seller of purple, purple and likely had more money and therefore had a larger house and that that was probably where the early church gathered. We saw Paul's encounter with her in Acts chapter 16. We also saw the encounter with the demon-possessed girl from whom Paul cast out the demon and it really angered her master, but it could have been that this young girl was there as part of that church as well. We also see the Philippian jailer and his family coming to faith in Jesus Christ, being baptized by Paul, him and his entire household. So as Paul is drawing on these memories, we can imagine that those that he encountered there are part of this church congregation. We also understand, uh, just if we look at some of the dates in which this was written, and when Paul and Silas went into the city of Philippi, that Ten years have probably transpired since Paul last was in the city of Philippi and engaging in fellowship and ministry with those in that church. So imagine that Paul is bringing back these memories of ten years having gone by and still recalling very vividly these people by name. And that is the way it is. You never forget those who are part of your family. You know, we have those that we're connected to that biologically we have family members that we're always going to remember them. Many of us are probably praying for them. And that is how it should be among the family of God, that we are all connected, we are all brought into the family of God through Jesus Christ, redeeming sacrifice, and we are connected, we are part of this, this family business, if you will, of sharing the gospel. Paul had been through a lot to bring the gospel into this region of Macedonia where the city of Philippi was. It was a tough city on Paul and Silas, but it had great rewards. Remember, after Paul had cast the demon out of this young girl, that her master had gotten very angered by it because it impacted his ability to earn an income off of her ability to perceive or to tell fortunes. That was his business, is selling out her services of providing these fortune tellings. And as a result of this, the complaints came to the magistrates. The magistrates did not really question Paul and Silas. They took him into custody without checking whether or not they were truly Roman citizens, which later on we find out that they are. The magistrates never should have done this. Um, But we see them being brought into custody. There was a purpose in it all, that God had a plan for this Philippian jailer to be uh, impacted by the gospel. Um, But they were, both Paul and Silas were put into stocks, they were put into chains, um, which would be for me a place of absolute misery. I could not imagine being beaten and then put in chains, and then in the midst of all that, be able to sing worship songs unto God. But we see there where Paul and Silas, that their true joy, their true hope, their foundation rested 
in the sovereignty of God, having them in that situation for a particular purpose. And we see there when they are delivered miraculously by this earthquake that comes and releases them and all the prisoners, this Roman jailer, he is, this jailer is very um, scared because he is going to be blamed for them having been released from this prison and he had nothing to do with it. And so he, he cries out for mercy. He realized he cannot do anything of his own and God meets him there with his grace and he is saved as a result of all this. And God's sovereignty over all of that, having been introduced to Lydia, having uh, introduced to this girl who had a demon, casting her out, brought into the prison, uh, taken, taken, or wrongfully apprehended and taken into prison, having suffered, and only to bring the gospel to this, this jailer is, that is there. It is these things that Paul is bringing to mind as he's remembering those in Philippi and God's amazing work that he has done there. And he offers up praise to God for them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So it is a prayer of thanks that Paul is bringing to God. In verse four, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. As I tried to bring out in the introduction last week is the tone of this entire letter to the church in Philippi is that of joy. It resonates with joy. It sings out with joy. And Paul writes of this here. Paul could have remembered all the torture. He could have remembered all the rejection, his being beaten and wrongfully accused and thrown into prison. He could have remembered all the evil people and their intentions of evil there that, may have, that would have probably been me, been lost in the circumstance. How could he thank God for them? He couldn't remember anything good about that city, right? But yet Paul is not putting his joy and his hope in the circumstances that he underwent there, but it is all in Christ. It is all in joy of God in his heart. He focuses on the blessing of having been there with them. He says he is able to make this prayer with joy. And that's the first appearance of this word joy in the book of Philippians. And we're going to see it 20 more times throughout this book. And the Greek word for joy is chara. And it means a feeling of great pleasure or inner gladness or of delight, an emotion evoked by a sense of well-being. A joy in the New Testament is virtually always used to signify a feeling of happiness that is based on the spiritual realities, is based on being in Christ, independent of what happens, independent of the circumstances that we have in our lives, this joy can be had. Because as believers, we have a resident joy. We have a joy that takes up resident within our lives, and that is found by the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling our hearts. In Galatians 5.22, Paul writes there, telling of the fruit of the Spirit, first being that of love, but then joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. But there we find that joy is the product of the Holy Spirit within a person's life. That the Holy Spirit is there enabling the joy to be had despite the circumstances, empowering it to overcome the things that we face in life, the hardships, the persecutions. In Acts chapter 13, verse 52, it says that the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So there, with the Holy Spirit resident in their life, the joy was connected by the Holy Spirit. 
that's how they were able to experience and have and share this joy with others because it wasn't had in circumstances that were happening uh, and affecting them outwardly, but it was something that was rising up from within. And that is the joy that we are are studying here in this book is the joy of the Bible, the joy of Scripture, the true joy that we can have only in God, not an external happiness. Joy is the condition of a heart who has a relationship with God. And catch what Paul says in his offering up of thanks. He says, I thank my God. That's the first thing. He thank my God. That indicates personal relationship. Paul knows where the source of this joy is. It is from his God. Therefore, he thanks God for these people he's brought into his life, and he thanks God for this joy that he is able to offer offer as that sacrificial worship unto God for everything that he has brought into his life. And this joy is only had by a changed life, not a changed circumstance. We can wish all day long that circumstances would change in our lives, and that somehow we could, we could just strain hard enough, you know, clench our fists strong enough and just will this joy to happen in our lives. But this joy isn't something that we will about. It isn't something that by changing a circumstance it just comes. If you're a true believer, if you have put saving faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a residing joy within you. It is a joy that is already there. It is because of a changed heart. Not happiness but this inner state of being. I don't have a citation for this next quote. It comes from a site that I go to sometimes. It's called Precept Austin. It has a lot of commentators there. But I kind of like what this commentator had to say, though I don't know his name. I'm just going to reference a, a no name here. But it says this of joy and comparing it to happiness. It says, Happiness comes through things outside which stir feelings within. Joy leaps within from God in the heart and soul. Happiness is like the changing surface of the ocean, joy like the ocean bed, untouched by change of wind or atmosphere. Now, that's not a quote from Scripture. It's a quote from a commentator, so take it as that. But the comparison there is very stark. We understand what a happiness is in a general sense, but the true joy that we receive from God by His presence within us, by the Holy Spirit, is something that is just living there. It resides there. We always have it there available to us. Paul says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Then verse 5, he says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This phrase, because of your partnership, shows that Paul views them as co-laborers in Christ, co-laborers for the cause. I mentioned earlier, it's a secular term that these, they're part of the family business, right? The business of the gospel, that is the cause, the cause of the gospel, that's what they're partners in. And the word here for partnership is a Greek word that some of you may have studied before, it's called koinonia. Koinonia, it's found often in the Bible, but you might see it translated in English different ways, but it's the same Greek word. Koinonia could be translated as fellowship, or as it's seen here in a partnership, a community, communion, joint participation, a gift jointly contributed, a collection, a contribution, as exhibiting an embodiment and proof of fellowship. The Bible dictionary has all these different ways of translating this one Greek word, koinonia. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, 
We have the thriving, the budding church there, the gospel going out, and many coming to faith in Christ. And they were very simple in their fellowship with one another, in their koinonia. It says there in verse 42 of Acts 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? So the study of God's word, the truth, and the fellowship, and the koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So really four simplistic components that were part of the early church that it was a study of God's word, which we're doing, and part of it was that fellowship, that koinonia, the uh, word that is used here in our study of Philippians, that partnership that they had. In 1 Corinthians 10.16, in the ESV translation, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, it is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, it is, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the body of Christ? So there, that same Greek word is translated here as a participation. It's a fellowship, and it's a partnership, as we see here in Philippians. And it is all centered in Christ. It is all founded in Him. It's being on the same team, if we wanted to you know, coin a secular term, or as I mentioned earlier, being part of the family business. It involves, though, an investment from us. It's an investment of time. It's making a deposit or a contribution. As I was reading the definitions for this term koinonia, we see in a Bible dictionary, and again, this is not scripture, but another way that we could look at this word is a gift jointly contributed. We contribute together. It's a collection. It's a contribution. It's making a deposit in others. That is really ministry. Ministry should never be a one-way street. We don't just minister to others and, and not ever have them minister in return to us. And likewise, we shouldn't be you know, just expecting others to minister to us. It is a two-way contribution. You know, when we saw the closing down of many of the churches due to COVID, it took away one of the things that is vital to church community. It, it impacted the ability to fellowship and to have that communion with one another face-to-face. And engaging in that part of our contributing in this koinonia way. And churches, I think, are still, many are trying to recover their fellowship. Uh, still, the, the online thing is great, and I think it's good for those that can't, you know, come to church. But if the only excuse is, is that we just don't want to be among people and we just would rather watch our services online, that is not contributing. That's not making a contribution in a face-to-face way. I think it's very clear in Scripture that we're to join in to a church fellowship. We're to take part and contribute to one another. Second John 1.12, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. And why did John desire to be face to face? So that our joy may be complete. The completion of that joy is to face to face interaction and contribution. Verse 5 again, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So notice what is centered around, right? It is the gospel, the partnership in the gospel. It's not just the partnership in the eating donuts and the drinking coffee and having conversations about the weather. It is the gospel. And I imagine a circle of people, you know, joined arm in arm, and not a, not a game of Red Rover here, but, you know, joined arm in arm celebrating the gospel, 
those that are committed to teaching the gospel, those defending the gospel, those sharing the gospel, that we are in partnership in all those things that are centered around the gospel, the good news of God to this lost world. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, and I love this, beginning in verse 15, is that Paul is writing, writing to believers there, and when we think about believers, we think of those who have already been changed by the gospel, and that is true. But he said, I desire to be with you to preach the gospel to you. So it is even though we are saved by the gospel, we still grow in the gospel. We have our fellowship in the gospel. We, I just love it when I can come together with, with other men and women of the faith and then our conversations turn towards all that Christ has done for us and you see how that gospel message joins us together even for those of us who are already saved. Paul says, Romans 1, 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also who are in Rome. Again, he's telling this to believers and then he continues on, for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This powerful message of God, the good news of God to mankind, His one and only Son sent to redeem sinners like you and I. This is the business of which we are to be about from the first encounter that Paul had with them and his sharing the gospel with them. He recalls the moment their relationship began and he recalls and he brings into remembrance where it is now, that they are growing in the gospel. He says, from the first day until now. Verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is certainty in Paul's statement that he makes about this congregation of believers. He says, I am sure of this. What is he sure in? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul can say this with certainty, and we can say this with certainty as well. Let me just real quick here, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have unfinished projects at your house that are just all around your place that are incomplete and will probably never get fully completed. Like I said, I don't necessarily need a a show of hands. (laughs) Jeremy doesn't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I I know there's some that I don't even want to bring those to mind. (laughs) You know, you start out with good intentions, but then it just kind of fizzles out. You dads know what I'm talking about. So I'm so glad that it was not man and especially not myself that began this work that Paul is talking about because I would have not saw it through to completion because the he who began this work, this good work, the he is God. And we know that when God starts a work that God will see it through to completion. He doesn't have a list of unfinished projects out there. God completes every one of them. He is all faithful 100% of the time, and he will do exactly what he says he will do because he is God. Spurgeon writes here, where is there an instance of God's beginning any work and leaving it incomplete? Show me for once a world abandoned and thrown aside, half-formed. Show me a universe cast off from the great potter's wheel with the design in outline, the clay half-hardened, and the form unshapely from incompleteness. Well, we don't see that. 
we see God completing his work. But not Paul, not any other apostle or teacher began this good work, not continuing or completing this good work. It is God, and God does so by the grace, by his grace to change our hearts, to regenerate us. In Philippians 2, 12 through 13, I know we'll probably be taking a deeper dive into this passage, but just to jump ahead a little bit, Paul says there, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we just stop there at that period, we would think, okay, well, maybe it is up to us. We have to work out all of this stuff with much fear and trembling. But see what Paul does in continuing. He says, for it is God, verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is working out of your life is because of what God is working in you and what he has begun in you and what is he is completing in you in that sanctifying work of his. It is all God. The saving work of God to change the sin-hardened heart is a miracle. And it is good and it is something that only God can do. And for those who are saved, the good work has already begun because God initiated it. The life lived after conversion is a life of continued of repentance and sanctification. We never arrive at a perfect state, but we are always in the state of being perfected. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He initiated it. He is now in the process of sanctifying you. And he began it and he will see it through to completion. There's that in-between of our being reborn and then meeting Christ face-to-face. The greatest work of full completion was there on the cross as Jesus finished his redeeming work where he took our sins to the cross, where he died the sin death that we deserved. He took on the full-on brunt of the Father's wrath so that we wouldn't have to, making a way for us to have a relationship with God through his sacrificial atonement on the cross. And when he had poured out his blood, He's declared, it is finished. And that Greek word, tetelestai, means debt paid in full. It is a completed work, and God did it. And because he finished his work, which showed that he was God, he is able to bring those who are his to himself. The bride of Christ, his church. The day of Jesus Christ, the day of his final return, is the way I interpret this when the bride of Christ will join its bridegroom. So from our life founded in Christ, the in-between and the end, it is all God. In Revelation 1.8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. He was, he's the one who began it, he is the one who is right now, and he is the one to come. He is the Almighty. He is sovereign over all of his work. And we can be certain that he will return for his bride, the church. And as believers, this is a day that we long for with anticipation and with much joy. And I want to look at those who I had the privilege of witnessing come to a saving knowledge of Christ, grow in him, and then get to meet him when we are all called home together. 
look what God did. Not look what Owen did. Look what God did. That is joy. You know, the joy of seeing believers walking faithfully with the Lord and knowing what they one day, because of our koinonia, the participation in the gospel, what they will get to behold with each other, and that is being face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's why we can look at verse 4 and see why Paul would say, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. You know, hurricane season is not upon us yet. I think that usually comes around August or September. But you can witness the, the destro- destruction of a hurricane, the, the winds that sometimes get up to like 160 miles per hour. But it is like Paul is in the eye of this hurricane. He's writing this from prison, right? He's surrounded by Roman guards. He's been beaten for the cause of Christ. He's been stoned and left for dead. And yet... Paul finds himself in this space of joy and peace. And if you ever studied anything about a hurricane, you know that there is an eye in the middle of that storm. And that is Paul's space. That is where Paul is in all these things swirling about him, all these persecutions and hardships. That is why he is able to say that he is making his prayer with joy because he has an absolute peace and an absolute trust in God the good work of God that started and is doing now and will complete. Paul's joy was not found in financial well-being, but finding salvation and thinking on these co-laborers who will get to see, along with him, will get to see God one day. And if you are not already, I invite you to be intentional about this in your prayers. You know, to take time and ask God to bring to your remembrance all those that God has brought into your life. Encounters with men and women who God has graced your life with, and those now that God has brought into your life as part of this church fellowship. And take time to pray for them, to offer up thanks for them, to invest, to do life with them, to be part of the fellowship, looking forward to the day when we will all be face-to-face with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a song that we've sung before. I think we're going to sing it today, but I've just got one line of text or one uh, verse that I wanted to share as we close out this passage this morning. It says, All the waiting will be over. Every sorrow will be healed. All the dreams it seemed could never be will all be real. And you'll gather us together in your arms of endless grace as your bride forever when we see your face. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this day of just bringing us here together as your church, as your bride. I thank you for the participation that we have because of all that you've done for us, because of your great gift of grace. Thank you for your mercies towards us in giving us your one and only son to pay the penalty that we deserved. And God, there's, I don't know hearts here, you do. And you see if there is that residing joy that is brought by the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And if they just can't seem to find this in their life, then rather than a circumstantial change, maybe they need a heart change right now, God. I pray that you begin that good work that only you can do right now of changing the heart bringing them out of the lostness of sin
and to a life of victory that you have for them. That they would put their faith and their trust in you and recognize that you, you paid the death that they deserved, that you took all of their sin, that it is forgiven, that it is washed away, that their faith would be put in you and you alone. They repent of their sin and turn to you, God, so that you can work in them that good work that only you can do bringing them into a saving relationship with you, restoring them, and God, to give them that hope that one day they will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.